Hello, hello, and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman, coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This program is run with the assistance of the UTS Business School, and each week we take a closer look at the numbers that make up the news. It was Dr. William Fagey, the American epidemiologist, largely credited with eradicating smallpox in the 1970s via mass immunisation, who said vaccines are the tugboats of preventative health. We're all anxiously awaiting news in 2020 about a successful vaccine for COVID-19, with the Australian government securing a letter of intent, or the diplomatic equivalent of a pinky promise, with Oxford University and pharma giant AstraZeneca. But as we do at Think Business Futures, it's important to take a closer look at the Petri dish and find out whether the vaccine could bust the virus or break the bank. Joining us today is Dr Richard Diabreo-Lorenco, Associate Professor at the Centre for Health Economics Research and Evaluation at the University of Technology, Sydney, and he's joined by Jennifer Herz, Managing Director of BioIntellect, a strategic planning and marketing research firm for the biopharmaceutical and medical device sector, including commercial government and non-for-profit organisations. Thanks for being here. We might as well start at the beginning. On August 19th, the federal government announced the deal with pharmaceutical company AstraZeneca, valued in the hundreds of millions of dollars that will ensure Australians will be amongst the first in the world to receive the Oxford University COVID-19 vaccine, if, of course, human trials are judged as successful and safe. So it seems a natural place to start this discussion. What are the logistics of securing a vaccine supply for a sovereign nation? And we'll start with you, Richard. Um, well, thanks, Max. Uh, and it's a, it's a pleasure to chat to you about this. Uh, I think there's a couple of things to unpack there. And, and I might actually um, throw to Jenny in a moment to talk about actual supply of the vaccine in terms of that logistics component. The question for me is about how do we then make it available to the population, which is a very interesting question. And we have a a quite rigorous process that once we have a safe and efficacious vaccine, which, as you just said, um, this deal is conditional on the evidence showing that it's safe and efficacious. We then have a rigorous process with our existing uh, procedures in Australia about getting vaccines to the population. Whether that process will apply to this particular vaccine, given the circumstances in which we're operating, I'm not certain. And Jenny, I I don't know if, if you know whether there are any questions at the moment about expanding NIP policies procedures, so NIP being the the National Immunisation Program, to make it more flexible in the case of a COVID vaccine. It's well known that there's a a large number of vaccines in development and and not to talk about all of them, but the WHO have a good list of the draft landscape of vaccine candidates, which is what we call a vaccine before mm. it's it's proven. There's 30 in clinical trials at the moment. So if we take those 30 as a baseline, what's quite common in biotech to look at is to look at the probability of success at each stage of development. And there are publications that would suggest that, for example, if you have a vaccine in the preclinical stage, so before it gets into humans, it, it might have about a 10% chance of making it all the way through to market. And of course, that percentage goes up as you get 
through each stage of clinical trials. So if you consider at the moment that we've got 30 in clinical evaluation, you know, the probability of success will vary for each of them, but it but it might range between 30 to 50 percent based on literature and, and what's gone before. Then we've got a fairly good chance of getting a few of those vaccines all the way through to market. Having said that, there's there's then all of the specific conditions around the SARS-CoV-2 virus and, and the immunology of it and the disease. And um, it, it's not it's not easy and it's not a given that we'll have a successful vaccine. And, and as you know, and many other scientific experts have already said, you know, there are vaccines, for example, for HIV, for malaria that have been very, very difficult to make and we haven't had good effective vaccines. And then there are, even for influenza, the vaccines are are imperfect. So it's difficult. But yes, I do think that we've got a reasonable chance of getting some of those candidate vaccines um, approved for use. When we're talking about the medical field and the regulations that companies who are developing these vaccine trials, the rings and the hoops that they have to jump through by country to country in order to make their vaccine trial viable, are the international regulations regarding trial vaccines, are they different from country to country or is there does there tend to be a sort of general consensus across the board as to what is viable and what isn't? So, so, so we don't have a global harmonised regulatory process. But what we do have is a lot of collaboration between regulators. Mm. So for companies, they tend to look to uh, the major regulators, both in terms of market size and, and credibility and expertise of that regulator. And that's usually the FDA and the European Medicines Agency. And then a sort of second tier of, you know, very well-respected regulatory authorities would include um, Japan, Canada, and, and our own Therapeutic Goods Administration in Australia. They do talk together and collaborate. And whilst I don't precisely know the mechanism, it, it's clear that they will all be collaborating around how to safely evaluate the um, data that's going to be generated for these vaccines and, and how to assess the risk and make the decisions about, about when those vaccines can be used. So there's a standard regulatory process, and, and Richard alluded to also the standard, I guess, vaccine policy process. But there are also specific provisions in place for um, public health emergencies and pandemics. And, and we, we went through that before with the 2009 pandemic, where the regulators do have some slightly different mechanisms and pathways that they can use to accelerate access. And obviously, the lessons that the world learned during particularly SARS, for many companies who built their contingency plans around SARS and the memories of SARS, it's become strikingly apparent as the months wore on that COVID-19 is nothing like SARS, at least in its longevity. So does that have a, another impact in itself upon the industry where a lot of the vaccine trials, the supply chains, the systems and structures that we use during SARS may actually not be applicable to COVID-19. Is that something that's potentially passing around regulators at the moment? I think one of the really interesting things about this pandemic is that's, that's different to what we've seen in the past are the um, non-vaccine measures that have gone alongside it to try and prevent contagion. And that's important when we're developing a vaccine because when it comes to actually trialling the vaccines and seeing how they might work to reduce, uh, to reduce risk of transmission, it's important for us to get an idea of, well, 
How might they work in the absence of social distancing, for example? So that's why we not only need very large trials, because we might have low levels of circulating uh, pathogen, but also to have trials in situations that might mimic what what normal social behaviour might look like when we get back to some, some semblance of pre-COVID world, whatever that might be. Indications at the moment that we're going to keep some semblance of how we're behaving now in terms of social distancing, but how that might alter with a vaccine and how that change in behaviour might also alter the efficacy of a vaccine um, depends on how the trials have been conducted. And we need these large trials to be done in a way that kind of mirrors how we expect we're going to be ha- be behaving. And um, would we need a would we need a trial in Australia geographically in order to test whether the vaccine is viable or not, or can we take the results of the trials being conducted by Oxford University and assume that the same effect will occur? What one of the one of the unfortunate things about uh, about um, not having video is you can't see my head shaking vociferously, <laughs> um, which is to say, no, we don't need to have um, these large trials done here um, in, in this way because we can take trials from overseas um, and, uh, and look at those results in Australia. Australia is a fantastic place to do clinical trials. We are in, incredibly well advanced um, and incredibly proficient at doing trials and we indeed are part of, of some of the ongoing trials, but that doesn't mean that they need to be done solely um, in Australia. So I had one comment on, on your question. You also asked about, um, you know, how business had changed related to SARS. Mm. Um, I, I think the other really, imp- and then I'm going to come back to, to Richard's comment about trials, and I, I agree with him. But um, w- one thing that has happened since then is the evolution of CEPI the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation. So I think what's really important is that, you know, when you look at the pharmaceutical industry, obviously that they are typically uh, making investment decisions, you know, based on a business opportunity. Mm. And there's been this evolution of uh, public-private partnerships to try and plug the gaps where there's a broken business model. And that's how CEPI came about. And it was really in response to the fact that it it clearly doesn't make sense for companies to invest a lot in um, epidemics or outbreaks like SARS or Ebola if by the time their vaccines develop, the epidemics dis- disappeared and, uh, and they're not going to get a return on investment. So, so what you need is public-private partnerships where you have the expertise and the manufacturing and product development capability of industry, but but supported by governments who, who obviously have the ultimate public health objective in mind. So that, that's been a big change. We, we've never had the level of global collaboration and funding that we've seen this time round with with not only CEPI but but also other governments and, and obviously notably the, the US government's invested a lot as well. So so that that's completely different in terms of the business model and how that impacts um, companies. And the deal that we're speaking about includes $24.7 million worth to American medical technology giant Beckton Dickinson to secure 100 million needles and syringes in order to issue the vaccine. Now, that in itself raises an interesting question about our supply chains and, and whether they need to be locked in in order for a vaccine to be viable. So PricewaterhouseCoopers in July of this year conducted a study which revealed in Australia these supplies are primarily sourced through a long and complex supply chain, and I quote there, with 68.2% of Australia's medical supplies 
imported from the United States and Europe. And in 2017, a national capability audit on medical countermeasures conducted by the Department of Defence found that Australia's ability to meet its domestic needs is lacking. So it noted Australia's strength in early stage discovery, research and clinical trials, but it noted a lack of critical mass in end-to-end product development, scarce manufacturing facilities of limited diversity, critical shortages in talent, and limited availability of non-clinical services. Do the two of you agree with PricewaterhouseCoopers' assessment of the domestic industry? Do you want to go first on that one, Richard? Wow, that's a really big call there, Max, to ask if we agree agree with a detailed <laughs> report from another from another company. Yeah, yeah. But what what I will say uh, is, you know, there's a there's a a a dictum in economics about comparative advantage, and. Well, I'll say two things. One is about comparative advantage and our comparative advantage in this country when it comes to the, the, the tech space is in that early development. That's where we have proven ourselves to be highly skilled and highly sought after around the world. It's not in the um, end stage manufacture of um, what I will call low value products like syringes. You know, BD do a great job in, in producing those things en masse. Um, and they do it at high volume and they can do it at low cost relatively and get them around the world. We wouldn't be able to do those things in the same way that they can do uh, and as cost efficiently as they can do. So as a nation, you know, trying to shift our manufacturing base to things like that just won't happen again. We, We used to do it in the 40s and 50s. We've moved away from it because other countries have the comparative advantage. The other idea is this notion that we can build capacity by lots and lots of um, products to have sitting around, and, and, and I've heard this touted in terms of, you know, having lots and lots of spare capacity for ICU, but how is it that we would fund that capacity and actually keep it viable? You, you know, you just don't turn these things on. They have to be maintained. They have a life shelf, they have a shelf life that has to be respected. So that in itself means that things will become obsolete and it becomes wasteful. So from from an efficiency point of view, I I think, you know, we do have to uh, sometimes take a step back and say, yes, it would be nice to be um, self-sufficient, but the reality is that's just not going to happen and that we have to look, look at what we're good at and look to others to provide the things that we can't produce here in a, in a cost-efficient way. Um, Jenny, you might have a completely different view and I'll get off my soapbox. No, I, I actually, I think I have a complementary view. So firstly, we participated in the audit, um, the medical countermeasures audit, audit that was run by DMTC. So I'm, I'm quite familiar with that report. And, and yes, I, I would agree with its conclusions. I haven't read the PwC report, but I, but I think I understand their position. And, and again, I think broadly, I would agree with the sentiment that we're great at um, early stage research. We have great quality of um, science in Australia, in our medical research institutes and our universities. We're great at clinical trials too. And, and actually, there is a, a new clinical trial network called Vax for COVID that's uh, being set up. Uh, just to briefly come back on the clinical trial question, it's unlikely we'd be doing phase three trials here because we mm. actually don't have enough COVID disease to yeah. show efficacy in a 30,000 patient subject trial. So you need to do them in, in a place where there's a high attack rate so that you can show efficacy. But we have done phase one and two trials here. And in fact, there's a phase two trial 
starting today, which is Novavax's trial in Australia, which has several sites in Queensland, uh, ACT, New South Wales and Victoria. So on this issue of, of what we do well and what we do badly, we're great at the science, we're great at clinical trials. What, what we're not very good at is product development and manufacturing. And that those are probably the, the core gaps that were highlighted. And when you think about the supply chain, I, I would agree with Richard, we, we can't do everything. We're a relatively small nation in population. You, you can find if, if you... Um, you know, if you search on the internet, the US government invested a lot in a large pandemic flu manufacturing facility, which ultimately was acquired by um, Secura as part of CSL. That facility in Holly Springs was probably in the order of half a billion dollar investment. Now, it doesn't make sense to have a lot of factories like that sitting around if the capacity is idle. The only way you hmm. can uh, they can be useful is if they're operational. And if they're operational, then they need to, to be making something that's being used in, let's say, standard times as well as in pandemic times. I do think we need more investment in, in manufacturing in Australia. And I think it should be strategic, focused on almost complementing where we can supplement the global supply chain and play to our strengths. And also looking at our more vulnerable neighbours in the region uh, we should take a leadership role in the sort of Indo-Pacific uh, region and, and perhaps look at manufacturing solutions that would support some of our neighbours as well. There's more investment. And, and if we did that, that actually would attract the talent because it is also true that one of the biggest costs of, for example, running a manufacturing facility is not the bricks and the mortar um, that, that you build it with. It's actually the people and the quality systems that you need to operate it and, and make sure that it's run to a sufficient level of quality to meet the regulatory standards. So you do need a skilled workforce and, and we, we definitely need to invest more in that in Australia as well. And as part of the letter of intent, there's a commitment to producing the vaccine domestically. So do we have the capital, the structures, and as you've just mentioned, the talent pool to be producing the vaccine in Australia at the moment? I, I wouldn't be up to date on everything that's been announced, but I think there's been some discussion in the media about the role that Securus and CSL might play in, in manufacturing both the AstraZeneca vaccine and the University of Queensland uh, vaccine yep. candidate. And certainly, you know, the, the company in Australia that absolutely does have that capacity and capability is, is CSL and Securus. We don't, we don't have any others in the vaccines. We have some others that m manufacture pharmaceuticals. Um, so, so we need more, but, but I think uh, we certainly have a very capable, competent, you know, global vaccine manufacturer in CSL and Securus. When it falls under a particular sort of licensing deal, how does a private company license out their vaccine? You know, when you license out a vaccine, there's a sort of core technology. So um, if we if we take the example of a company overseas that, that might have, let's say, a recombinant protein vaccine, that, that vaccine will be um, developed in a particular expression system. So in the case of Oxford, it's, it's a chimp adenovirus. So whatever that technology is, you, you know, you've got the core technology that is, is used to develop the vaccine. And, and then that's got to be transferred to wherever you're going to manufacture it. And, and then technology has got to be scaled up. And then obviously you've got a, you know, a manufacturing process from end to end. So, so I, I guess you can, you can break down the supply chain. So, you know, at the, at the simplest, you could import bulk vaccine, for example, what they would call bulk 
drop drug product and you could fill and finish it into vials or syringes in Australia. And that would be just having a small end part of the manufacturing process that was done here. Or you could tech transfer the whole lot and and have it manufactured from scratch in Australia. Um, And there are probably some sort of hybrids in between. You you could feasibly, um, if you had a vaccine that had different components, like you might have the, the antigen and the adjuvant, and they might come from two different places and then you could you know blend them mix them fill them and, and pop them in your syringe or vial and complete your manufacturing and your packaging um, but but the supply chain's complex and, and obviously uh, you've got to make sure that that the quality and the regulatory standards are managed all the way along that that supply chain but Richard made a really interesting point at the beginning that that we haven't come back to he was talking mm. about you know making it available to the population and and I did want to raise one thing, you know, Richard, you talked about flexibility in the National Immunisation Programme. And I just wanted to say that, you know, that there are two mechanisms to get vaccines available because the government does procure medicines through the National Medicine Stockpile. Yes. And, and that's, you know, that's a different way of doing it mm. to getting it on the NIP. And the main difference I would see is that in a, in a public health emergency, if they make a, a procurement decision through the stockpile, then it wouldn't necessarily have to go through that mandatory PBAC funding process uh, to get on the National Immunisation Programme, which is what normally happens for a more Mm. routine vaccine. So so that's one difference as well. I wondered whether there had been any mention of the national stockpiling, um, national medicine stockpile yet. Um, uh, No, I I don't think any of the pathways have been formally announced. And similarly, Mm. you know, what what regulatory pathways the TGA might consider. But I'm just looking at the fact that we we do have precedent for that in the past. You know, the government's procured smallpox vaccine through the stockpile and it's procured um, pandemic influenza vaccine into the Mm. stockpile. So that's what what I would imagine could happen in this scenario. And, And so you might see a situation where, Vaccines are procured right now through the stockpile for emergency use with a particular regulatory pathway that's used. And then in the future, as we settle down to a a more routine situation and it becomes clearer um, how many vaccines available, then they might actually go through Mm. the national immunisation programme process, be evaluated by the PBAC for cost effectiveness and and, and end up, you know, in in a routine schedule if, if covid is around for the longer term, which it looks like it will be. Is that a sizable figure in the world of health economics or is it just me from the outside looking in, seeing 25 million as this astronomical figure? Well, well, I mean, look, it's, it's it, for, for a vaccine deal, it's, it's larger than usual, but it's, it's, it's not. So you, the COVAX facility, which, um, you know, is the, is the global, there's this global access to COVID tools accelerator, um, is aiming to have two billion doses available by the end of 2021 for the most vulnerable populations, and I imagine that the top two groups that will be considered will be the elderly and healthcare workers or, or frontline responders. Um, so, so I guess in in the Australian government situation, they've got to um, one plan for um, securing a vaccine for the Australian population. Um, I imagine they're going to participate as well in the COVAX facility, uh, which is really aiming at equitable access and, and rolling a vaccine out, um, you know, to the to the most vulnerable populations first, and, and trying to avoid vaccine nationalism. But but if you just you know think about it, most 
many of the vaccine candidates are likely to need two doses, not mm. one. So there'll be a booster. So so that's if you're going to vaccinate all Australians, that takes you to 50 million doses straight away. Um, and then if you consider that maybe we've we've only got I don't know what the number is. I don't know if it's thirty percent chance of success, but but let's say maybe it is. Then maybe you need to secure three times that to, to be sure that you're going to have vaccine available for Australia. Yeah. Now I don't know how those decisions being are being made, and and there'll certainly be a task force within government that's looking at that and how to prioritise. But but that's where the numbers will be coming from. So we we saw the UK announcing similarly, um, you know, large deals with several manufacturers that that total up to more than their total population. And that's obviously because they've, they've got to take a bet on which ones are going to succeed. In the United States, they've signed six agreements. Britain has five and Japan has three. So are we putting all our eggs in one, albeit very posh, Oxford basket? Um, but when we're analysing <laughs> this from a, a health economics perspective, is it wise to not play the field, so to speak? I, I'm I'm quite sure that that there will be others i hmm. think i think what we've got to be cognizant of is that the earlier that you get into the contract the the greater the risk you're taking because the less you know about the vaccine vaccine so i actually think it's prudent to wait till a little bit more data becomes available once you start to get phase 2 results you really are starting to get a, some sense of you know safety and efficacy and and ideally you want phase 3 so whilst the world's in a rush the reality is there's quite a long way to go to firstly get you know, the data on safety, the data on efficacy to allow the manufacturer to scale up and for the vaccine companies to be certain about, you know, the total capacity they're going to have available, um, the schedule of, of when those doses are going to be released uh, and their capacity to deliver. So, you know, cynically speaking, if you had locked these in now, I'm not sure I'd believing them, be believing them anyway, right? We need yeah. a bit more time to get everything lined up. So the other thing I, I would add to that is, you know, we also don't want to stop investment in other potential candidate vaccines. And so if, if you know, we proliferate with lots and lots of deals for candidate for, for vaccines at the moment before people have taken them all the way through, you know, what does that do to incentives to develop new candidate vaccines? Um, as Jenny rightly points out, we don't know how effective these vaccines are going to be yet. And what we don't want is to stop anybody from hitting on a, on a new vaccine that might be more effective. So we don't want to stifle that investment. Well, as they say, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich country to secure a COVID-19 vaccine, or at least something similar. Today's discussion has hopefully shone some light on the long road ahead for securing a COVID-19 vaccine. Should our faith in Oxford be ill-founded, then Australia's strengths in early clinical development and pharmaceutical companies like CSL with the resources to produce a vaccine could be the homegrown answer. It's the arms race for the modern age, or more so a race to the arms of 25 million Australians. So place your bets. Once again, thank you to Dr. Richard diabreo Lorenko and Jennifer Hers. You can catch the full show online wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, make sure to tell your friends. I've been your host, Max Tillman. Thanks again for listening.